You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, good morning. There we go. I'm Jason Ellis, and uh, I'm an elder here at Bethel. I'm happy to be here with you this morning. Is that, is that beating back a little bit? I, uh, my family and I usually attend the South Campus, but we've been here a few times. Happy to be back and to continue a series we began. You see, last fall, we began a series as a church in 1 Corinthians. But since that time, we have carved a turkey, bought Christmas presents, wrapped them, opened them, Hopefully start to take down Christmas. And if you're like my family, transitioned from flu seamlessly into a cold. <laughs> and uh, so it's been a while. I, I think this campus, somewhere around mid-November's last time we were in Corinthians, uh, Pastor Clint was preaching in Corinthians 8. So I thought a recap might be appropriate. I'm hearing myself up here. Is that? Maybe I'm not too loud. I'll, I'll, All right, so Corinth at this time, Paul's writing a letter. The Apostle Paul's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a city in what we know is is Greece. At that time, it's arguably the chief city of Greece. It's wealthy due to its location on strategic trade routes where ships would come through. It was near the coast. Uh, They're wealthy. They're influential. They are seekers of knowledge. They highly prize wisdom and philosophy. We know through... Uh, archaeology, they had at least 12 temples there to false Greek and Roman gods. Notably, uh, a temple to Aphrodite was of, of importance there. They, in keeping with false religion, practiced all sorts of immorality. You'll know what I mean. There are little ears here, but you'll know what I mean when I say that. And uh, so that's the culture of Corinth. Now, Paul, when he went there, spent a year and a half there on his missionary journey, establishing the church. He met fellow believers who were also Jewish, Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple, and they also were tent makers like him. That'll come up later on in this sermon, but they made tents together, and they preached the gospel, and they planted the first church there in Corinth, and it grew. You know, there's only one church, the church at Corinth or in Corinth. And here in 1 Corinthians, what we see is that Paul has been, although he left Corinth after a year and a half to go to Ephesus where he spends time, he keeps in touch with these believers that he, you know, that he had led to Christ through letters back and forth. And we can tell in 1 Corinthians, this isn't even his first letter. We can tell from context. What we see in this letter, though, is in the first six chapters, Paul is largely addressing problems that have made their way back to him, that he's heard from other believers. Problems among the Corinthian church. Namely, among other things, division and factions that are dividing the church body And they were starting to imitate the immorality of the culture around them. In chapter 7, Paul then turns, he says, to the matters they wrote him about. So they had questions for him. We can tell from context what their questions may have been because he's writing back to them about those questions. We have kind of one half of the conversation in a way. You know, we titled the series, Imperfect Church, Perfect Gospel, You know, in the earlier chapters of Corinthians especially, we see the imperfection of the Corinthian church. I mean, they were a wealthy, influential society, always in pursuit of greater knowledge and wisdom, but they were troubled by divisions, immorality, and they likely idolized money and possessions. 
I don't know about you, but I think that hits pretty close to home for American culture. And today, we're going to see the, the perfect gospel, as we titled the series. We're going to see Paul's high view of the gospel, how it affected everything he did. We're in chapter 9. Let's first look at verses 1 through 3. Chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So we can tell that whatever they wrote him, they had some questions, even some criticisms for Paul. They are examining him. They're doubting his authority. Now, why might you do that? You know, in debate or argument, we call this an ad hominem attack. They didn't like what he had to say. So instead of rebutting, you know, instead of addressing what he had to say to them, they say, well, who are you anyway to give us any preaching or any authority? Who are you to correct us? In fact, they are questioning whether he's even an apostle. So let's talk about that for a second. What is an apostle? I think if I asked most people what an apostle is, you might say, well, they're disciples. And that's not a bad answer because we think of the first 12 disciples that Jesus chose and they become apostles. But it's actually, there's more to it than that. The word disciple just means a student. In fact, Jesus had many disciples beyond the 12, many that followed him. But, but, but 12 were chosen to be apostles, not Judas. He was replaced, Right. So when we talk about apostle, we're talking about something else. The Greek word for apostle just means messenger, one who was sent to deliver a message. And there are a few times in the New Testament where the word apostle, or the Greek word for apostle, is used generically. Just anyone in that sense could be an apostle that they were sent to deliver a message. But most of the time that the word apostles use, it's not describing a general idea for a messenger, but really the office of apostleship. So at Bethel, for example, we have pastors, we have elders, and we have deacons. These are offices that are, that are approved and established by the elders and by the congregation, and they have specific duties and responsibilities. Now, we don't have any apostles, and there's a reason for that. We're going to get to it. But there's a specific office of apostleship, and that's something more than just the general word apostle. You know, it's kind of like the word doctor, right? If I say to you, who are, who's your doctor? You know what I'm asking you. There are many types of doctorates, right? You, but I'm not asking you who your English professor was in college. I'm not asking you even who your dentist is. I know my friend Scott Ellis, uh, no relation, he attends here. He's a lawyer, which means he has a doctorate of jurisprudence. But if I fall over right here, right, and I'm not doing well, someone says, get a doctor, you know, Scott can keep his seat, right? <laughs> Every, everyone knows I don't need emergency legal services, Right? Well, I need a medical doctor. That's just the way we talk. And in, in the New Testament, when the word apostle is used, almost always that's what we're talking about, the office of apostleship. Right? So what is an apostle? Well, let's look at the text. We have a clue here. He says there, um, am I not an apostle? Next question. These are rhetorical questions. You'll remember those. Those are the ones your parents or teachers ask you when they're upset and you're not supposed to respond to. Right? He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? What we'll find as we comb through the New Testament, there's two major qualifications to be an apostle. And this was the first one. To have witnessed with your own eyes the resurrected Lord Jesus. 
You know, if you're here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with him. You've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But we have not yet seen him face to face. Of course, Jesus died. He resurrects. He spends 40 days there on earth restoring Peter, restoring the other disciples, right? And, and, and he's witnessed by many people, up to 500 people. So you have to have witnessed Christ. But more than that, you have to also have been specifically commissioned to be a messenger of the gospel. And Paul is saying that's what's happened to him. And, and you'll remember probably his conversion on the road to Damascus. And Paul will say later on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so I guess we'll get there in a few weeks or months, that he's like one untimely born. He's the last apostle in a sense, which is a cool title, right? He's the last because Jesus has already ascended to heaven. You'd think the number of apostles is set, but it's not. He appears this bright light. He has this personal meeting with Paul. And in fact, we can tell later on Paul has even greater revelations with God. <clears throat> but Paul is saying he is indeed an apostle. Now, is he saying this to build himself up? I think we'll find that he's not. He's doing this to remind them of his authority. There's really God's authority that he is a steward of. And then he reminds them, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? You know, he said, you should know I'm an apostle. I, I, I preach the gospel to you. So he says, this is my defense. Now we're going to move to verses 4 through 14. Here Paul gives his defense of his apostleship. Again, more rhetorical questions. Do we not have, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is another name for Peter. You, in chapter 8, if you remember back, uh, Clint addressed, the, that chapter 8 dealt more with what they could eat, food offered to idols. There was a big division among them about what was appropriate to eat, what wasn't, and, and, and that's addressed better in chapter 8, and it's continued here. But there, he's saying he has authority to do those things. He says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So that's an issue. You're gonna, as we go through, we're going to see, here's the issue. Paul does not accept pay from the Corinthian church for his work preaching the gospel. Well, see, he does from other churches. Why? Now, you might be tempted to think, well, he's, he's so holy. Well, they would think they'd be grateful for that. Well, he doesn't accept pay. That's great, right? We do one less thing to afford. Actually, they are critical of him for it. They don't like that he works for a living, making tents to support himself. What we'll see in 1 Corinthians and then later in 2 Corinthians is there are other guys, self-appointed apostles, people that, that Paul sarcastically calls super apostles, who have a false gospel, and boy, they charged a fee for it. They peddled their false gospel. But the Corinthians are implying Paul's not really an apostle. He doesn't really have authority. If he did, he'd accept payment, as the other apostles do, as uh, I would say it's implied here that Peter does, and, and, and James, the brother of Jesus. And it was okay that they did. But Paul, we're going to see why later, has decided not to accept pay or tithes or offerings or patronage from the Corinthians for the sake of the gospel. But the first thing he does, and it feels, it's very Pauline, right? First he lays out why they should be paying him. And then he's going to come back and go, but I don't want your money. All right? 
Let's, let's, let's look at that. He's going to establish first why they should be paying him. So they're reminded his authority is legitimate. And his words are, are spoken through him by God for their edification. Look at his argument here. And this is, this is helpful for us in, in how we analyze an issue in our life and apply the word to it. He begins with reason, we'll see. He moves to Old Testament analogies and scripture. And he concludes with the very words of Jesus. First, he says... Who serves, this is verse 7, as a soldier at his own expense? Well, that makes sense, right? Soldiers are paid. Soldiers are housed and fed by the nation they fight for, right? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Right? If, if you farm or you shepherd, you expect to, to gain from your efforts. He's saying this is reasonable. He's implying, so if, I, if I've spread the gospel to you, surely you would, you would help support me. But he doesn't end it there. If he only used reason, which is probably what they were inclined to hear because they were kind of obsessed with, with Greek thought, you know, that, that wouldn't be enough. And he says it's not enough. Look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? You know, there's a, we got to be careful when we only reason apart from the word of God, right? We are not infinitely wise. And uh, a lot of bad theology is born out of what we think things ought to be untied to what the Bible says they are. Now, reason is God's. Logic is God's. But he's given us the tools we need here. So Paul moves on from reason alone to the very words of the, the law. When he says the law, that's not just the Old Testament. It's probably more specifically the first five books of the Old Testament. And here he quotes Deuteronomy. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. He said, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? First of all, how sweet that God um, cares about the ox. It's, it's kind of neat. What, what he's saying there is, you know, I'm no farmer, but I guess you'd use an ox to pull a plow or some sort of farming implement, and you might be tempted to muzzle the ox so he doesn't eat the grain as he goes along. But apparently, and I did not realize this, there was a law not to do that. The Jews were to let their oxen eat as they went along. It's very generous of God, very sweet, I feel like, with the oxen he's made. And Paul's extending this analogy. He's going, God cares about feeding oxen. Do you think he cares about feeding people? Of course he does. But then he goes on. He, he, he expounds even more. Doesn't he, does he not certainly speak for our sake? This is verse 10. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And he says, if we, you know, Paul and Barnabas, have sown spiritual things among you, the very words of God, the, the means of their salvation, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others, and these are probably other people who were not their spiritual fathers in a sense, people who had not brought them to Christ, but if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have made, not made use of this right. So he's saying, we, we have the right I'm a real apostle, Paul says, but I haven't made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So he gets a little a hint to where he's going. And then, almost like he's writing this and has another thought, two more reasons why they should be paying him. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Now, what he has in mind here, 
certainly is the, the Levitical priesthood. So you'll remember the 12 tribes of Israel. One was the Levites. They were the only ones who would be priests. Uh, it's one of the things that makes Jesus so interesting. That he's this high priest, but he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's a, anyway, but he, uh, the Levites, we you know when offerings were made for God, most offerings weren't entirely burned up. They wouldn't entirely burn up all of the animal. They would burn part of the animal or some of it would be offered, but much of that meat would then go uh, to the priests, and that's how they would feed their families. He's saying that's how we've always done it. And in fact, maybe he even has in mind how the pagan temples operated. They operated similarly. Although it was in false worship, still the people that served in those temples were, were cared for by the donations to the temples. That's the way temple service works. Paul's saying that's how it was then. And he continues this thought. He says, in the same way, this is verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So when he says the Lord there, he means Jesus Christ. So he's given them reason. He's talked about the law regarding oxen and kind of expounded on that and applied it to him. He's talked about the Levitical priesthood. And now he talks about the words of Jesus. This is probably a reference to Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus commissioned 72 people to go out in twos to spread the gospel. And he tells them what to take and what not to take. And he says the worker deserves his wages. You know, this sermon isn't primarily about how we make an argument. But, you know, so much of life is, is saying, how would God have me live? How would God have me address this issue? And praise God, I think many of the answers are, are verbatim in the Bible. But this is an interesting example of how we can address problems in our life. Not reason alone, but the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the words of Christ. And... In our case, now we have the words of Paul that are the words of God spoken through by the Holy Spirit about the need for us to support those, to support the ministries of God. You know, this is not a, a sermon on giving. And the primary focus of chapter 9 is not about giving. It's really about the high call of the gospel, how Paul's made that center in his life. But it is a reminder that we don't want to miss out on the opportunity to serve God with our giving. And I think when we let go of what God has already given us and surely belongs to him, we, we practice that act of humility of, of sacrificing. Um, and so I want to encourage you to, to be a part of, of giving at Bethel if you're not. All right. Verse 15, there's a shift here now. So he has laid out a reasoned and scripturally supported reason why he should be supported by the Corinthians. But now he says, I don't want your money. They must be a little confused. He's kind of going back and forth, it would, it would seem. Let's see what he has to say. Verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's saying, look, I, I'm not even saying this now because I really mean you should support me, but I'm kind of embarrassed to say it. That's not what he's saying. He said, I don't want your money. Why? For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. His boasting in this case would be that he has preached the gospel free, that no one can say, well, you know, really, Paul, you, you kind of owe us because we, you know, we pay your light bill, right? We, we, we pay your rent. We take care of you. You see, what we'll find as we pour through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is, this probably isn't surprising, they're criticizing him because he doesn't accept money. 
Sometimes people have something to say about you, and it really is a greater statement about them, right? And I think that's what we have here. The Corinthians are revealing their heart is they had a problem with money. Apparently, we learned this through 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, they had promised earlier that they would give money to the saints in Jerusalem because of famine and persecution, those, the saints, the believers in Jerusalem were especially suffering. And Paul was taking up a collection from all the places he went to bring that money back to Jerusalem. So he wasn't taking money for himself, but he would take their money for the saints in Jerusalem. And in chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, he says, hey, you guys promised you would do this, and you kind of started it, but you haven't finished it yet. So I just want to encourage you to kind of do what you promised, right? I think what we see is that they had an unhealthy relationship, the Corinthians did, with money and possessions. And Paul, as their preacher, as their pastor, as an apostle entrusted by God over them, knew that about them. And he was willing to go without. He was willing to work with his hands. I don't know what tent making's like, but I imagine it's work. Right? He was willing to be a part of that, to not put any obstacle in the way of their growth in the gospel. You know, at the same time, he was still accepting donations from the Macedonian church, and they were poor. You see, he would behave differently with different believers to meet their needs. He was most concerned with their needs. The Corinthian church was in a far better position to give, but he knew that if he did that, it would be a hindrance to the gospel. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, <laughs> he wants to almost backtrack what he said here. He said, I don't, no one's going to take away my ground for boasting. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Because the gospel is about what Christ did. He said, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, in, in uh, Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah talks about how he has to talk about God. He says, if I don't talk about him, it's like a fire in my bones. I got to get it out. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, you're not going to stop me from preaching the gospel. You know, interestingly, we're talking about rights here. Paul's not talking about his, you know, political rights. He's talking about his rights within the church as an apostle. But here's a guy who was a Roman citizen who would often assert his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal to a higher authority. But for the sake of the gospel, because he wanted to go preach to the next guy that had to decide his case. You see, the decisions Paul made, they weren't about Paul. They were about what would advance the gospel. In the next couple of verses, I'll kind of summarize. Um, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship What he's basically saying is, I'm not doing this on my own will. I'm, I'm a slave to Christ. I belong to Christ. I, I've got to preach. It's what I've got to do. So, so then what is my reward? Verse 18. That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. This is what motivates Paul. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. This is verse 20. In order to win the Jews. He probably has in mind here 
What's it mean he became a Jew? He's already Jewish, right? He's ethnically Jewish. Did he switch back to Judaism? Now, he probably has in mind here customs, probably especially eating customs, right? He's, he's not going to go to a Jewish house and eat bacon because he knows, well, God, God doesn't care about that. God, God cares about your heart, but he's not going to do that. He's not going to put a stumbling block before them. So he says, I, I become like a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. But he's quick to clarify, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, so Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, but not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Again, always to win those for the gospel. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become, look at this, all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And you want to say all there, which is a reminder of the reality of the world we live in. It's probably not a heresy we struggle with here at Bethel. I hope not. But you know, some people preach universalism, that everyone's going to be saved eventually through some means or another. And that's just not the case. That's why there's an urgency, this fire inside Paul to spread the gospel. And there is nothing that would stand in his way, um, not just in preaching the gospel, but how he would live his life, how he would relate to those around him, that he might save some. Verse 23, you know, if you want to do a Cliff's Notes on chapter 9, you could start with verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. And you could finish with verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. You know, had all these questions for Paul. Paul, why do you eat this way? Or with some people and not others? Or why don't you accept tithes from us, but you do from other churches? Why do you do this? He is most concerned with the heart of the people he's witnessing to, he's preaching to, he's shepherding. And he has the gospel in mind. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Now, why? Why did he do it all for the sake of the gospel? You know, I, I was a couple years ago, I was driving with my oldest daughter, Natalie, and um, I was telling her about my day, and I said, you know, I, I, that morning I had a meeting with a friend of mine named Stephen, and she said, I know a Stephen. And I thought she was going to say someone from school or church. I didn't know what she'd say. I said, who do you know? And she says, from Superbook. If you don't know Superbook, it's a... It's a kid's cartoon of the Bible stories, basically. I said, oh, yeah, Stephen is in the Bible. She said, yeah, they killed him with rocks, which is true. If you don't remember that story, he's one of the first deacons of the early church in Jerusalem, and he is stoned uh, by Jews for preaching um, the gospel, essentially. He's stoned. And Natalie asked me, says, Daddy, um, she says, did he go to heaven? And she's probably remembering that, in the, in the, I'm sure the Superbook episode shows what happens in Stephen's final moments. He looks up and the heavens are opened, and he sees God in his glory. I said, yeah, he, he did, buddy. He went right to heaven with God. He's still there. He will always be with God. I'm sorry. And then she said, I hope that mean man Saul isn't there. And if you don't remember, when Stephen is stoned at the end, the... In honor to Saul, who is Paul, it's the same person, 
They laid their cloaks at his feet. You see, he oversaw the stoning of Stephen. You know, I have this tendency to put Paul on this pedestal. I feel challenged and convicted, like, oh, he's so holy. I mean, this guy was so sold out for the gospel. I can't ever be like this guy. And certainly his faith is an inspiration, and we should live like him in as much as he is modeling Christ. But he's just like the rest of us. And he knew that. He didn't forget that. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm not even really worthy of being an apostle because I persecuted the church. I mean, what would we say about a man who dragged people away from their families, essentially lynching them and stoning them in the streets because he didn't agree with what they believed? Well, I think I'm tempted to hate such a man. But Jesus saw fit to call such a man to be his greatest apostle to the Gentiles. I suppose that's notable, unless some of you are of Jewish descent. We're largely just a room of Gentiles in here, all descended from all sorts of pagan ancestors. Who knows what our ancestors were up to in the time of Jesus? But Jesus saw fit to send Paul to people like us. You see, Paul wasn't that different than the Corinthians in some respects. Now, I I don't think there's any reason to think he was guilty really ever of some of the immoralities they were practicing. But he was like the Corinthians, advancing in his own culture and the way that his culture measured success. He says he was, he was the most Jewish Jew, he was saying. He said, I was advancing beyond all of them. I had a great rabbi. I was impressive. The fact that he was persecuting the church and stoning these, these people who believed in Jesus was proof of his devotion to God. And all of his education and all of his training and all of his prestige, he says he counted his loss. It wasn't worth anything. And Jesus called him. He did not forget where he came from. Paul was just like anyone else, a condemned man, condemned to death. Not saved because of anything he did, but because of what Jesus did. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel isn't that you believed in Jesus, it's that Jesus saved you. Yes, thanks, Paul. You know, I've heard it said this way. You know, Jesus, it's not that we're drowning and Jesus rescues us. It's that we're dead at the bottom of the ocean. And he comes and gets us when we are dead in our trespasses. And pours his life into us. And that is life changing. It certainly was for Paul. His faith is impressive, but his faith is of God and from God. And his sins were real, and he didn't forget them, and he was ever grateful for God's forgiveness. So that's the gospel. It's life-changing. He wants other people to know it. He's willing to go without pay. So these Corinthians can just hear the gospel for free. I don't think this is an example of something that is prescriptive, but it's descriptive. He's not saying all preachers should do this. He's saying that's what he did for these people. It's not what he did for the Macedonians, who had less money. Let's finish verse 23. That I may share with them in its blessings, the blessings of the gospel. Now we have verses 24 through 27 as we move to close here. First, uh, a public apology of sorts. I think in my heart I've been too critical of many East Texas pastor and their sports analogies, <laughs> especially the Dallas Cowboys. Because here the Apostle Paul 
in the inspired word of God uses a sports analogy to explain his devotion to the gospel. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he probably has in mind here the Isthmian Games. So that was like the Olympic Games, but kind of the in-between years. I mean, I don't know, kind of think of the Pan Am Games, if you know what those are. Not quite the Olympics, but, but pretty important. Like the Olympics, they had the same kind of events, horse racing, foot races, wrestling, something called pancration, which I think sounds like mixed martial arts. I don't know what they're doing there. But uh, it was an athletic competition. And they would receive a wreath. Maybe you've seen that before. If This year's an Olympic year. It's going to be in Paris this summer. Uh, about 20 years ago now, if you can believe it, when they were in Athens again, all the medalists got those wreaths. They put a wreath crown on their head. It's a perishable wreath, right? Just like a boutonniere or a, boot, you know, a, a corsage. It's just going to, it's going to rot. It's going to go away. And he's saying, but think of their devotion, right? And we all know these stories, right? I, I was reading about Michael Phelps. He apparently would swim six hours a day in the pool, not counting all the workout time he would spend in the gym, all the sleep, the eating regimen. I mean, the story of these athletes, they're amazing. They, they often move to different cities to get to the right facilities. They have a singular focus. To be the best of the best, they have to reorient their whole life around the main thing, right? So someone would say, make the main thing the main thing, right? They would focus on that. And I think we all understand that. We all understand that that's what it takes to be the best in sports. And that for an imperishable wreath. I can help but think, you know, in some ways, it's all perishable, right? I mean, Super Bowl rings, those are all going to be gone someday, right? Stanley Cup, Lombardi Trophy, whatever they call that World Series trophy, it's just metal. Someday it won't, won't last. He's saying, but if that's the kind of devotion people are capable of for this earthly focus, how much more should we be focused on the gospel? He says, we're going to receive an imperishable one. Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he's, he's striving forward for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. I think it's a reminder to us to just examine our lives. As, as we relate to our neighbors and our coworkers and our family, are there rights that we have, like Paul had, that, that we're giving more importance than the sake of the gospel? And I encourage us to examine ourselves to see where we could do that. I don't want to close out that without addressing, though, what he says at the final verse 27. Sometimes that can send chills up your spine, right? Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's not talking about what we call justification here. Bethel, justification is that you are already saved. You have been judged righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel, right? As Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he resurrected on the third day to fulfill the scriptures. That's the gospel, what Christ did. This is about growing in the gospel. This is about the rewards to be expected in heaven. I don't even fully understand them, but we know that there are rewards we know that part of that is just the joy now of being a part of God's mission. I mean, if you know the story of Ravi Zacharias, I mean, this is his sad story, that he has been disqualified, right, in some ways. That, that people who have made shipwreck of their life have taken the, the good words they have preached and made them 
almost unhearable by some people nowadays. They, they, they have, and Paul's saying, not only do I hope for you to grow in Christ, I keep my, myself accountable and in relationship with God so that I can continue to preach the gospel of God. All right. I just want to close by reminding us how good God is. You know, I, uh, I was really touched this morning by worship because I'm not a singer. But um, as I was preparing the lesson, for some reason, the song that kept playing in my head was Jesus Paid It All. And I guess that's the, the song that we sang right before I came up here. And, and that's the story that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all for you. And that should be life-changing. I pray that it is life-changing. And don't be, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. There's room to grow. Paul later will say not that he has attained it, but that he's pressing onward. We haven't attained it yet. We're still being sanctified until the day that we are glorified in his presence. Let me close this in prayer. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.